0: Hello, welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with C. Terry Hof, MD, MSC, about the article, Development and Validation of a Mortality Prediction Model for Patients Receiving 14 Days of Mechanical Ventilation, which is published in our journal, Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Hoff works as an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She also serves as Medical Director of the Harborview Medical ICU in Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr.
1: Well, oh, Thank you.
0: And I was hoping, uh, you know, your group has been quite active in this area, and I think this is an important publication to help further guide prognosis in the ICU, which is a difficult area and I think a, an area which many of us struggle with and a lot of uncertainty in terms of prognosis. Perhaps you could actually set the stage for this particular publication because I know it rests on um, prior publications from this group. And so perhaps you can give us some of the background and what led to this particular study.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you point out, this group we've come to call ourselves the ProVent investigators, uh, and this group includes Shannon Carson from University of North Carolina, who's sort of the leader of our group, but also Chris Cox at Duke, Doug White, and Jeremy Kahn at University of Pittsburgh and then Ivor Douglas at University of Colorado. And we came together maybe about 10 years ago um, with a common interest around being able to communicate expected prognosis and help guide conversation and communication decision making in the ICU, but particularly in this group of patients that we've been calling chronic critical illness or prolonged mechanical ventilation. Uh, and I think we got interested in this group because it's becoming much more common and this is a group who obviously uses a lot of ICU resources since they're on the ventilator by definition, you know, at least 8 days, maybe 14, maybe 21 days. Uh, and it's a group for whom outcomes are incredibly variable. And it seemed that being able to identify sort of the subgroups within chronic critical illness who may have a worse expected outcomes and being able to communicate that earlier uh, would provide both better milestoneing for families and opportunities to really make sure we're tailoring care correctly to patients and families again, over 10 years ago now, Shannon Carson did a study using patients who were on the ventilator at least three weeks or more in hospitals across North Carolina and found a group of predictors that seemed to be very associated with death at one year. And again, we think that these longer mortality endpoints are much more important than hospital mortality in this cohort, since they're sort of defined by hanging on a long time uh, when we talk about chronic critical illness. And so Shannon's group found a, a handful of predictors when they put them together in this model called the PROVENT model, or the Prolonged uh, Mechanical Ventilation Model, that it did a really nice job of discriminating patients at a very high risk for death. So he then connected with the rest of this group, and we said, well, why don't we validate this in many medical centers across the country? Uh, And so we got uh, University of California at San Francisco involved. Doug White was there at the time, as well as, again, Colorado, Duke, and then my place in Seattle at, at Harborview Medical Center, and found that actually the model performed even better across all of these places at day 21. So that was sort of the background. But we've noticed that certainly over time, we are having these conversations and making decisions about sort of which path chronic critically ill patients go on much earlier than we used to. Now it feels like it's around day 10, day 12, day 14, where we're sitting down with our families and saying, you know, this patient's not getting better. Are we moving towards tracheostomy and uh, commitment to ongoing support perhaps? For a long-term acute care center, as opposed to you know, maybe moving to comfort measures, that those conversations are happening well before day 21, and that was really the impetus for this particular paper.
0: I see. In that regard, is there a standard definition for prolonged mechanical ventilation
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It'd be awesome if there were, right? (laughs) So the literature is incredibly varied on how this is defined. If you look at the anesthesia literature, then anyone on the ventilator longer than 24 hours is considered prolonged because the expectation is the extubate after surgery. There are other papers that define this at 30 days. Our group has a paper that we put out in Critical Care Medicine last year, um, really trying to focus on narrowing this definition. Jeremy Kahn first authored a paper using a new definition that was prolonged mechanical ventilation and in the ICU for at least eight days. And so we're really starting to shrink back and say, we don't need you don't need to be on a ventilator for 21 days to start to have this sort of syndrome of chronic critical illness. And so the Research Triangle Institute definition is the one that Jeremy looked at in his paper. But I think that the community is starting to develop more of a consensus that we need to define this syndrome earlier. But no, but there still isn't one sort of commonly accepted definition at this point.
0: Gotcha. And much of the work that uh, your group has done is that—is it prior studies were, did they originate out of the ARNET, and were most of them regarding folks who had ARDS?
1: So we've been, although many of us have been, uh, you know, principal investigators or very involved in the ARDSNet, this group really has been outside of the ARDSNet, and using an ARDSNet cohort for validation as we did in the current paper, it's really the first time that we've used ARDSNet data in that way. Although we didn't do this sort of scientifically or systematically, uh, so we didn't include this in the paper, but interestingly, the vast majority of patients in these prolonged mechanical ventilation cohorts meet ARDS criteria at some point in their stay. You know, in fact, of the 180 patients that Harborview contributed to this sample, 176 of them met ARDS criteria at some point. So it, it clearly is a significant risk factor and, and may be, you know, tautologically the same, essentially, as prolonged mechanical ventilation.
0: So can you tell us exactly, is there's certainly a lot of statistics within the paper, and I don't want to get too deep in, into that, but can you give us kind of a broad overview of how you decide to approach this question of, of survival following prolonged mechanical ventilation we'll say for fourteen days in this in this regard?
1: And you mean how we selected which variables to enter or how we chose outcome measures?
0: Both, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. So maybe starting with the outcome measure first, you know, clearly 28-day mortality or, you know, ICU mortality doesn't make sense for an outcome measure for this particular population, especially when many leave the hospital still critically ill if they're going to LTACs, for example. So we chose a longer mortality endpoint. We chose uh, one year to model and use sort of National Death Index and other uh, administrative data set death data to be able to define that point. Uh, And again, with that understanding that the shorter endpoints just don't make sense in this population that typically is or many of whom are still on the ventilator at day twenty eight, for example. And then the starting point for the variables that we included was really the variables that Shannon had previously validated at a later time point at day 21. And the sort of the philosophy of choosing these variables is that we wanted something that could be used clinically and easily at the bedside. So we know a lot of chronically critically ill patients are transferred between facilities, for example, and you know often they they might start in the community but end up in an academic center. Uh, some of Jeremy's work has shown that to be true. And so we were looking for variables that you don't have to dig back through maybe admission records to the initial hospital to be able to find your predictors. So the variables that we chose are very simple. We chose age. We sort of have two models. One's a continuous model and then the other one is a scored model that you can kind of use your fingers to count out at the bedside. Uh, and that model includes, again, age at two time points, platelets right around day 14, whether or not a patient's on vasopressors, whether or not they're on hemodialysis, and whether or not the cause of their admission was major trauma. And again, all very simple things that any clinician at the bedside has in their hands.
0: And the vasopressors was at day 14?
1: At the, All of these variables are at day 14. At day mm-hmm. 14, yeah. Exactly.
0: And those variables were derived from a larger set of variables, but those were the ones that were significant in multivariate analysis? Is that I understood
1: it. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, in our day 21 paper, we went through a much broader group of variables. And in the first paper, these included things like, you know, strength and pre morbid disease and lots of other things, but found that this handful were the ones that best predicted this particular outcome, or at least by adding additional variables, that it didn't change the model enough. And really, we had this goal of parsimony of seeing what are the fewest number of variables that give us good discrimination, particularly at the of the model, meaning that can show us which people are bound to do very, very well and which patients have a very high risk of death. We were more interested sort of on those extremes because I think that in decision making at the bedside, that's really where the model is most helpful. Yep, so that's how we chose these variables. The only new variable in this model from the, the day 21 model was the addition of trauma on admission, and we found that consistently a patient who's admitted for trauma will have a better outcome than a patient who is a medical admission and still on the ventilator
0: at age 14. Sure. And I think it, it seems to make, make sense. As, as a trauma surgeon, we see a young, lot of pretty resilient patients who still have a fair amount of chronic critical illness, but do seem to get better more often than our are, are other sets of patients.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that the reason for being on the ventilator at day 14 may be different. Mm-hmm. I attend on the trauma ICU here at Harborview a lot too. and definitely see the patient who's perhaps still rotating through the operating room true, true. Um, and hasn't just had a time to maybe clear their sedatives and get the extra fluid off to get off the ventilator as opposed to having developed, you know, critical illness neuromyopathy and maybe renal failure and all of yeah. the other things that we see in this population.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I was curious, you alluded to this a little bit, I think, when you mentioned the set of variables for the prior study, but there's so much in literature, growing body of, of evidence regarding frailty. And was there any measure of frailty utilized, or is that just not practical, perhaps?
1: Yeah, so it's a fantastic question, and we absolutely will, in future models, think of how to incorporate that data point. We didn't, we don't have a measure of frailty other than age, which is, of course, a terrible surrogate for it in this particular yeah. model. And I think that in predicting not just mortality, but in our groups, future directions is around trying to be able to, to predict functional outcomes, cognitive outcomes, the kind of outcomes that patients and families ask us about and care about when trying to make you know, critical care decisions. And I think that understanding sort of functional trajectory, resilience, all of those things that are incorporated into the frailty concept is going to be very important in that model.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. So for the folks who do survive, what is their functional outcome and what is uh, their quality of life? That's still kind of an unanswered question.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, we know that for, unfortunately, for the vast majority of this population, that those who survive, their survival is marked by functional dependence, by cognitive impairment, mm-hmm. um, most by inability to get home alone. You know, Chris Cox, senior author on that very nice Annals of Internal Medicine paper, I forget which year, a few years ago now, where they followed a cohort of chronic critically ill patients over a year and looked at all of their transitions of care and then looked at their functional dependence and where they ended up. And of this cohort of patients all on the ventilator at least 14 days, only 11% were home and independent at the end of one year. Mm. So very sobering statistics.
0: Yeah, very statistics. In many ways, I think this is great evidence to have because I think as clinicians practicing in an intensive care unit who don't see those outcomes necessarily, our viewpoints are often jaded or biased, I should say.
1: No, I think that's right. But I think it's important to recognize this variability of outcome in this cohort is in both directions. Uh, you know, we have in the paper, uh, we have our Kaplan-Meier plots of survival by ProVent score. And in our development cohort, so this is the one that's not the ARDSnet validation, but our sample from the five hospitals, if a patient is under age 50 and came to the ICU for trauma, their expected one year survival is 96%. I mean, almost all of these patients are alive and those that we follow, most are doing well. So again, if you don't have any of the risk factors, people will do well. Yet, I've certainly been in clinical situations where uh, the other physicians I'm working with say, wow, this patient's been on the ventilator 14 days and they're still really hypoxemic, they're not getting better, you know, maybe it's time to start moving towards comfort measures. Gotcha. Yeah. And to be able to identify that particular group and say, no, we really have good evidence to say that this patient has an extremely high likelihood of, of survival. But once you're older and now have a few organ failures that are persistent at day 14, we can start to say with quite a bit of certainty, at least that the minority is going to survive, but even with even more confidence, that almost no one in those groups is able to survive independently.
0: Interesting, yeah. And so, and I'm just looking at the at table four. So in the development cohort, there were actually 70 of those patients with a, a score of zero. Is that right? So, so it's a decent number of patients to demonstrate on that kaplan survival curve. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, that's right. You see, with the confidence intervals, that's a pretty tight confidence interval. Mm-hmm telling us that at most, you'd expect that less than 10% of those patients will be dead at one year.
0: Since you you did mention it, and I'm not sure that we all completely understand, can you help us understand the rationale for having this development cohort and then a validation cohort? In easy language for many of us to understand.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. So anytime we're developing a model, we tend to pick variables that you think might be associated with those outcomes. But then as you build it within your cohort, there may be things specific to the patients that are in the first group you're testing it in that make your variables fit very well to the outcome, even if it's not more generalizable, right? So maybe we just had a group in which all of the trauma patients did well, but that that's not the case generally. Right. Right. And so in model building, because you start picking, you know, scores. So, for example, giving two points for people who are over age 65 in this cohort, it's possible that that, again, was unique to the cohort, but not found in another sample. And so any time that you're looking at a prediction model, it's really important to see if it's been validated in a completely separate population to show that this just wasn't a quirk of the first population, but rather something that, that is a, a broader truth that's generalizable to other populations. And ideally, if they can be patients you know, from other centers as different as possible, then that's going to show a broader applicability of the model. And so, since, again, all, pretty much all of everybody was involved in this group was connected with the ARDSNET as well, it occurred to us that we had the opportunity to look at these same variables in patients who were in the ARDSNET FACT study, the fluid and catheter treatment trial, because those patients had all of these variables measured within ARDSNET, and then were connected to a long-term outcome study run by Derek Angus called the EPAC, or the Economic Analysis of the Pulmonary Artery Catheter Trial, that followed patients to one year so that they could look at mortality and health-related quality of life. So that data set had all of the data points that we needed and were, for the most part, completely separate. Now, instead of being at five hospitals, we're at 40 hospitals across the country and offered, again, an independent validation of our cohort. It's a bit of a funny cohort that we validated in, though, since they all had to have ARDS, which isn't necessarily true early in the course. Uh, you know, For our other sample, that, that wasn't a, an entry criterion. And if patients died in the hospital, we knew for a fact that they were dead and they were included in the validation cohort, but then we didn't have outcomes for all of the FACT cohort. It was most of it, but not everybody. And so it ended up, what we say, enriched for death, so, the mortality of the validation cohort is considerably higher than you would have seen across that entire population. But since we were trying to predict death, that actually worked out okay for us.
0: I'm just trying to remember from the, the differences between the populations. They were a sicker population, is it? That-
1: well, they were a sicker population, but again, in part because if a patient died in the hospital, then they were included in the cohort, and yet there were several hundred patients who weren't included in the follow-up study who we couldn't include in the validation cohort because we didn't know their one-year outcome.
0: I see. So it's kind of skewed towards the folks who died early.
1: Exactly. Exactly right. So it was it was enriched for that hospital mortality.
0: I see. <laughs> enriched. I like that term. Mm-hmm.
1: hmm <laughs>
0: What surprised you about your results?
1: One thing is we were surprised at how well the model performed in the in the ArtsNet cohort. It performed basically the same as yeah. it did in our development, which is exactly what you want to see when you're building the model. I think that was one thing. I think the other thing that surprised us is really how tight the observed mortality was, so how narrow those confidence intervals were in the highest Provence score group. So that if, you know, if your proven score was four to six, our observed mortality was 92%, and the confidence intervals were 84% to 100%. And that actually is a tighter prediction than we thought we would be able to give. And so what it means is, you know, if you're at the bedside and you have a 68-year-old patient who was a medical admission who has any of either being on vasopressors, being on hemodialysis, or having thrombocytopenia with their platelet count less than 100,000, that their expected mortality is close to 100%. And, and that to be able to so easily really be able to identify that very, very high-risk cohort and to be able to start giving that prediction with some confidence, I'm not sure we expected this would be that clear.
0: That's interesting. I mean, even so I can have a patient who's greater than 65, has a low platelet count, and is not a trauma admission, and that gets you to four points, right? Four points. Yeah. And so I still struggle with how exactly, I guess, I mean, simply being able to present that data, but, you know, there are plenty of folks who would look at it on the flip side and say, well, I have a 8%. Chance of of living. How do I know what risk to take? What type of care to continue to undergo? And and then, I guess, a further question: In these patients who do have a high risk of death, are there things that we can improve in our care that would improve those mortality and, and perhaps more importantly, the functional outcomes?
1: So the first simply is, what do you do with this model, right? Like, how do we use these details at the bedside? And is that even helpful? Chris Cox and one of our ProVent investigators is PI on an NIH-funded R01 right now, which is a randomized controlled trial of a decision support tool. So it's a tablet-based app that Chris has built that helps us deliver education about chronic critical illness, and then we input the data to give patients and family members, really family members, this ProVent score. And so right now we're we're getting the experience of learning how does that help families sort of come to concordance around understanding prognosis and then seeing how does that affect decision-making and how does it affect sort of psychological outcomes of family members both at the time but then at six months. So I think we're going to learn a lot. We're in the last year of enrollment in the study right now of, you know, can we use decision aids to help use these prognostic estimates in a way that's helpful to families? But I think the next part of the question is probably the key, which is, so when there's uncertainty with prognosis, what other information is helpful for families in making sure that we make patient-centered decisions. And I've found Chris's annals paper that I referred to earlier that talks about what that year looks like being incredibly helpful. So if I can say to a family member, well, I'm really worried that, you know, this patient has a very high risk of death, but even if they survive, this is what I expect will happen in that next year. They will transition between care facilities a median of four times. They will come back to an acute care hospital at least once and it's very unlikely that they'll ever be home independently. And then I think it starts to focus the discussion around how good is good enough when we look at particular patients' preferences and how, you know, what are they willing to endure for a small chance.
0: Interesting. I certainly look forward to the work that you're doing with Chris Cox. That sounds like a very interesting and very informative trial.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think so too. We're all really excited about it. And uh, it's been hard not to have contamination because all of the other clinicians who've seen this this tool are uh, very eager to get their hands on it. So we're we're hoping it works.
0: And did you say that is a randomized trial?
1: Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're taking uh, patients who Yeah, taking folks on the ventilator on day 10 or beyond, and they're randomized either to sort of usual care where there's a family meeting and a discussion about prognosis and decision-making, but not informed by the tool versus the intervention group, in which they're sort of proctored going through the tool with one of our coordinators.
0: We'll really look forward to that. So in terms of the second part of the question, what do you think that we could do better to improve these outcomes?
1: Yeah, so I think the first piece is to try to prevent chronic critical illness. And I think that at least a significant proportion of it is preventable. I think that this early focus, there's the IHI and ARC and some of the other groups have been focusing on ventilator liberation recently and looking at decreasing sedative use so that your patient's interactive and, you know, able to participate in physical therapy and um, being able to keep their brain going. I think that's a huge piece. I actually think that fluid management is an important piece as well. I think that when people get sort of an additional liter positive per day after sort of resolution of shock, I think that we're much more likely, likely, likely to have patients who are still stuck on the ventilator around day 10, and that's certainly what the FACT trial showed us. So I I think that those are a few pieces that we can do. I also think that maybe earlier on we can start understanding who's at really, really high risk of chronic critical illness and make sure that our clinical decision-making is appropriate, right? So for a patient who, who really, we think, is very unlikely to get through this to make sure that we're having those conversations early instead of being blindsided by it for the first time at day 14.
0: All great points. Thank you. Are there other points that you'd like to get across that we haven't covered?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that starting to create a framework where Early in the course of critical illness, we're having conversations both amongst the care team and also with patients and families about, you know, concerns for what prognosis is going to look like and milestones of what getting better starts to look like. I think we'll be able to make better patient-centered decisions, and I think I'm hopeful that family members will have less psychological distress is associated with all of this. You know, I think that, for example, if we can start to lay the groundwork on, you know, we're at day five and a patient's still very hypoxemic and we think that they're bound to still be on the ventilator, to meet with the family and say, look, these are the things that clinically we're looking for to change. We're looking for resolution of some of these organ failures. You know, we're, we're looking to getting off the ventilator so that then at day 10 or 14 when the patient either has improved or hasn't, that we've brought the family with us on that process of understanding what these major predictors of outcome may be. That's
0: great. And this, uh, again, this particular study adds a great tool to our, our mentarium. I mean, it's a very simple scoring system to uh, really quite well discriminate uh, mortality outcomes. So, again, we do appreciate it. And I hope I hope there's a lot of folks listening so that they can uh, utilize this tool to help guide prognosis in the ICU.
1: Thanks. Yeah, we, we hope so as well. And again, we're eager to be able to follow on the heels of this with a new tool that's going to predict some of those very important outcomes, the outcomes that patients and families ask for instead uh, around function. So so hopefully uh, we'll get some good work moving forward in that direction.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, your publication and your time for this podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Michael. This has been great.
0: This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein.
2: Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine. Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.